Welcome to Future Ed, the show that explores the future of education. I'm your host, Peter Croft. Our guests on this episode are Lee Elberson, CEO of Claiborne Education in Charlottesville, Virginia, and John Faila, founder of Trilogy Mentors in Richmond, Virginia. Claiborne Education is a tutoring company that primarily focuses on preparation for college admissions tests. Trilogy Mentors is a tech company that provides a platform for tutoring companies across the country. In this episode, Lee and John talk about some of the issues COVID-19 is causing in education and what the transition to online has been like when it comes to the relationship between parent, instructor and student. They discuss future challenges for tutoring companies with the rapid onset of online adoption, especially when considering the challenges to relationship-based learning. Lee and John explain why many college students prefer online tutoring and why there is a lot more value added to online tutoring than online classroom teaching. They discuss some of the challenges involved with resource inequality, inevitably linked with online learning, and some of the opportunities and ideas to make online learning better. Lee and John discuss their attitudes to standardised tests and what opportunities there might be for their companies in the future and for the education space in general. Lee and John touch a lot of different stakeholders in the education space. Parents, students, colleges, graduate schools, and K-12 schools. So we hope you enjoy hearing Lee and John's insights. Lee and John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, Peter. Why do people come to Claiborne Education, Lee? And why do people come to Trilogy Mentors, John? I think for us, uh, traditional classroom learning uh, will never reach 100% efficiency. And, you know, at every student processes information differently and at di- varying time scales. And I think anytime a parent or student feels like there's a gap between the student's aptitude and an achievement, there's a need for tailored education, such as tutoring. Uh, Claiborne education fills this need in a variety of different services. Most of our students are looking to make a jump to the next big step, like getting into college, uh, graduate programs such as law school or business school, and and even some competitive high schools. Those jumps usually require building candidacy, which entails standardized testing, writing personal statements, and essentially packaging the student's life experiences in a way that showcases their desire and talent to attend the school. There's a lot baked into that. And so, you know, admissions counseling and and standardized test prep usually are the the biggest pieces of that. Um, Outside of that, we fill the gaps, you know, in between those major jumps when students just simply need help with, you know, Spanish or calculus or biology or or any sort of subject test. Uh, I, I would say an even more holistic approach we've taken in recent years is to offer what we call organizational coaching which is essentially helping students develop healthy and effective study habits while encouraging them to take ownership of their life and realize that it's not about what choices we want to make for them, what their parents want, or even what their teachers want. It's about them selecting the choices in their life and, and how they budget their time to achieve those goals. Um, so that's that's basically what encompasses the, the services at Claiborne. And with Trilogy Mentors, it's important to know our past and our story as to why people work with us today. Trilogy started as a in-person tutoring company that was very heavily focused on the relationship between the student and the instructor. And after operating for the first year, we realized there was a giant opportunity for us to take our business online and to scale the impact of our company through online tutoring. The biggest issue was there wasn't an all-in-one platform out there to help us not just optimize our business, but also grow our company through virtual instruction. So we decided to take it on ourselves and build our own platform, truly what we believed is the first all-in-one platform for relationship-based learning companies. With that platform, we were able to scale drastically over the next two years and found ourselves at the point where we met other tutoring companies that were also struggling with the idea of being able to bring their relationship-based holistic learning online because there wasn't an all-in-one tool out there. So it was at that point where we realized that Trilogy didn't just have a unique story, but we also had a unique platform 
to empower the majority of the tutoring industry in the U.S. to bridge the digital divide and bring their business, but more importantly, their relationships online. So today, what Trilogy does is we white label a all-in-one tutoring platform to other tutoring, mentoring, and coaching organizations around the country. Our system consists of a business management tool, which takes care of all the in-person, hybrid, or online tutoring day-to-day operations. It then includes a fully integrated virtual classroom, which allows for our partners to scale and grow their businesses via online instruction. And lastly, we provide them with a data and analytics portal that allows them to drive business decisions through the actual KPIs of their business and make informed insights on future strategy based on the learnings that have actually taken place on their platform. So the reason tutoring companies, mentors, and coaches choose Trilogy is because we truly built the first system that is focused on the classroom and built all the management tools around it. We don't just help you by providing you with software, but we also help you by building your business online, by providing you with marketing and student acquisition strategies. And last, but certainly not least, we help you transition your instructional methods from in-person to online, because that is a giant gap in the market that luckily for us, we have experience in when we brought our tutoring company online. So it's those three concepts and those three reasons why tutoring businesses really choose Trilogy as their technology partner to help them scale the impact that they're making with their students. What are parents most frustrated about with their experience of their children in education? Well, from the Claiborne side, I think, you know, what what we see is that, you know, parents can be very frustrated with the lack of ownership that their students take in their academic and career trajectory. Uh, You know, I think, as I mentioned before, parents always have this view of, of what they measure as success for their children. And you know, that when the students don't take an active part in that, the, the parents obviously feel that frustration. And then it's usually doubled over by the fact that the parents aren't truly able to act as a resource for the students. You know, the, the, the kids have the thought that, you know, the parents don't know anything. And so I think that's the, the double frustration that, that, we've, that we get when parents come to us. What we've seen as the frustrating part for parents, specifically in this push to digitization that's being caused by COVID, is the parents feel like they're the ones kind of being left out when it comes to the school solution to go online. And what it's caused is significant frustration for the parents because they feel like they don't just need to be a parent to their student now, but they also have to be a teacher and at the end of the day, be a babysitter for them to make sure that the student's able to engage in in whatever form of virtual instruction the school has decided to launch. So from our perspective, we've seen parents the most frustrated in feeling that when schools went online, the parents' experience wasn't being taken into account. So we have parents and we have pupils and students. There are other stakeholders, of course, as well, schools uh, and other administration uh, within those schools, as well as teachers. How have you seen the relationship between these groups of people? What tensions and differences, motivations exist in general, but certainly also as a result of COVID-19? We've certainly seen the relationships evolve significantly since the advent of, I mean, certainly social media, uh, but I think also online school portals. And as John mentioned earlier, anytime there's some sort of digital integration of, uh, of a resource, because I think what, what that does is it puts more onus on the parents and students to actively reach out to the teachers with questions. Because the assumption from the school system is that here is a portal which can deliver content and, and you can use to, to, to manage your, your, your learning trajectory. If you have any questions, you reach out to us. Whereas in the past, there has been a lot more handholding. Um, so I think that tension is certainly felt by, by parents primarily. The students will honestly just do whatever it takes to, to get the grade. Um, without, you know, caring much about what sort of experience they're getting with respect to how it was done before. Um, You know, I think with that, the school systems have long since troubled with leveraging student accountability. Um, You know, if you just put it in front of them uh, in a portal, you're going to require the students to to hold themselves accountable to make sure it gets done. 
or you're going to require the teachers to make sure they understand what's sort of missing, what what's what's sort of falling between the cracks when a student just goes through and checks off these boxes and submits this. Is there anything I'm missing by not talking to them consistently? Um, I think that the sort of data-driven approach that a lot of schools have done, um, these programs leave parents many times with more questions as, as how to interpret that data. Um, so I think in some ways data can be good or bad in, in that scenario. You know, you, you have a lot more access to the data, but the parents don't necessarily know what to do with it. Um, so that that's what we feel when, when parents come to us at Claiborne. Yeah. And with Trilogy, you know, as we've evolved as a company, the concept of the Trilogy has also evolved. But what it's always been rooted in is the Trilogy of stakeholders that need to be supporting a student. And it's the parent the instructor, and then the administrator. So what we've seen is that parents have become frustrated with the administrators because they feel like they're getting a whole new role tossed onto them. At the same time, though, a lot of parents have a newfound respect for their teachers because now that they're forced to support their student at home 24-7 through this educational process, they've really started to understand all the pains that teachers actually experience and do definitely have a newfound respect for them in some instances. So what are the opportunities out there? What are the, what is the magic bullet that perhaps could address some of these big issues that you've just discussed? Hmm. John, you want to take that one? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we like to think our platform has served as a somewhat of a magic bullet to really help these tutoring companies and all the stakeholders involved there move online in a frictionless and effective manner. But, um, you know, I also believe that one of the issues with education is too often do people just look for a singular magic bullet to solve all the problems for all these different students. You know, we can't really take a one size fits all approach to education because every student is very unique in their own way. So I think you'll see some innovations more around specific verticals in education. Um, one of them being like a online proctoring tool that allows students to be able to take these standardized tests and have the administrators have 100% confidence that those students wouldn't be cheating. I also think at the end of the day, platforms need to do a much better job of serving every stakeholder involved and not just focused on creating a system that leads to monetary transactions that they're able to take a cut of. How do you see that happening? Do you have any ideas on that front? Um, well, you know, that's pretty much how we built Trilogy, really focusing on all the stakeholders that are involved and giving them the tools themselves so that it is easy for each one of them to take the necessary actions they need to take in order to support the student. Uh, well, I think it's still an issue. And I think it's going to always continue to be an issue because just when you think you have a, a grasp on all of the platforms available or all of the requirements to get into school or to be successful, those requirements are going to change. And so, you know, I think for having a for each student, making sure that they have a mentor or obviously a tutor or an organizational coach or honestly, their peer group um, where they can bounce ideas off of. And, and that helps them gauge like what what is the standard for success and, you know, which of these platforms or programs or institutions do I need to pay attention to? And I think there's always going to be a need for that. Somebody to, to buffer the data and say, look, you're given about 20 different things. Why don't you just focus on these five? Because these align with your passions. So that that's what I think is is and probably always will be the magic bullet is having somebody to help the student distill that information. Lee, you've mentioned that one of the big issues is getting students to take ownership of their learning and that you have specifically moved in that direction the last few years. What do you do to actually do that? I'm sure it's a little bit complicated, but there is there a specific philosophy or a way that you actually go ahead and do that? I mean, it, it always starts with what do you care about, right? What what do you see as success for yourself in, in 10, 15, 20 years? And, you know, many students will throw out a career choice that they think is successful. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to own a business. Okay, well, why do you think you will be happy in, in that particular field? And so always sort of going to the why, you know, talking 
Simon Sinek, you know, obviously says it best, but like driving to the why, why are you driven to that career? And that's the concept of, of taking ownership, because if a student acknowledges what is really driving them towards their view of success, then all you're doing is to help facilitate that. So you really have to, to drive to the why. It's easier the older they get, but if you're asking the why for a 12 or 13 year old, you know, sometimes their motivations are so closely intertwined with their parents that it's a very delicate conversation to say, I know this is what your parents think is important, but what you think is important doesn't have to perfectly align with that. So, I mean, there's a lot baked into it, but that's usually where it starts. Student accountability has always been an interesting uh, concept issue, uh, especially in this new virtual world. And at the end of the day, I believe accountability really comes down to the relationships that are developed between the student, the instructor, as well as their parent. Because, you know, growing up, it's tough to just become accountable all of a sudden, and you're going to need some guardrails, you know, keeping you accountable as, you know, whether you're a student and K-12, college, or even a professional, having others hold you accountable is always the most successful way to do it. I do strongly believe, though, that you need to give each user tools that makes it easy for them to be held accountable. So kind of meeting the student and the parent halfway to make it not difficult or to decrease the friction it takes to actually hold the student and the learner accountable. John, you mentioned that uh, you're helping tutoring companies bridge the gap to go online and and scale up and you've you've done that yourself what is the future for for tutoring companies if that happens across the board um, and, and what i mean is if everyone's online does it matter that they have a local presence so you know in person tutoring will never go away and there is so much value in being able to sit next to someone that and there's, once again, you know, there's no really one size fits all. So some students will always learn best in person. What we have really understand in kind of our theory of trilogy is that in March of this year, you know, only 10% of tutoring in the U.S. was done online and 90% of it was still being done in person. We had a theory that over the next five years, tutoring was going to hit a 50-50 point where half of tutoring would be done online and half would be done in person, you know, really taking this blended approach to it. What COVID ended up doing was force this industry through a rapid digitization where by April 1st of 2020, 100% of tutoring was done online. So at some point, you know, we will return to what will officially be the new normal. And in our belief, let's say that'll be in a Q1 of 2021, we expect people to go back to teaching in person, but we expect to hit that 50-50 mark in Q1 of 2021 as opposed to Q1 of 2025. So there's a ton of users around the country who have found newfound value in, you know, not having to spend three hours a day driving your car to different areas. I also think one of the more interesting ones is Lee, like uh, the Claiborne team, as well as the Trilogy team, really believes in relationship-based learnings. In the past, you could only connect a student to someone who was living close enough for them to actually meet. However, the perfect match for that student might have been on the other side of the country. So in certain scenarios, leveraging technology and moving online will actually let these holistic relationship-based tutoring companies develop stronger relationships, which then starts to hold students more accountable and solve some of these other problems we've seen um, with a traditional in-person tutoring relationship. Yeah, if I could uh, tack on to that, I, I agree with everything that John said. And, you know, the the rapid transition to virtual learning, I, I think was was is a great thing because there was a, there was a lot of barriers to um, get, getting parents to understand the value proposition of virtual learning. For us, I, that's pretty much always been the, the sticky point. Uh, most college students would just prefer to do the sessions online. It saves them time from driving um, and, and they're able to, to maintain their attention. I think for, for parents making the buying decision for students, they've always seen in-person as a better way to connect with students. And I agree with John. I, I think that in-person learning will almost always work better, at least for a certain subset of students. Um, in, in terms of doing it remotely, I, 
I think that the the virtual space has helped us connect better and deliver the resources better. Um, I do think that having a local presence uh, helps you connect more with the students. It, communities are, are built on, on principles of shared values and a shared understanding of, of what that community is struggling with. So somebody who grew up in London might have a difficult time understanding somebody who grew up in Northern California and, and what they're doing to be successful. Um, and, and it is even more localized than that. Somebody from Louisiana might have uh, a difficult time understanding what somebody from Texas would be struggling with, even though the states are right next to each other. So I think having somebody with a local presence that understands uh, how that community is built and what shared values they have will almost certainly always be a stronger value proposition. Plus, you're able to leverage your your network. And I don't think that there's ever going to be a, a better recommendation uh, for a parent than hearing from a parent they respect. Hey, we worked with so-and-so. You know, we trust them. They're in our trust network. You can accept them into your trust network. And that happens very organically when you're living in the same community. Now, if you're delivering the services virtually, um, that, that's obviously a tool that you can utilize, but you're usually leveraging relationships within the community um, to, 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 to meet new clients. And Lee, I couldn't agree more there, where having the physical presence in your local community is so valuable for companies on so many different wavelengths that I couldn't agree more. That'll always have a place and it'll always be truly value added for not just the company itself, but also the community it's supporting. One of the things I'm very interested to see with some of our partners is how they try to um, make an addition to their in-person community through a virtual community. And I think if companies are able to successfully develop a virtual community in addition to the physical one they have, those are the companies that are truly going to succeed over the next five, 10, 20 years. You've seen a lot of change in the last few years, I'm sure, in terms of online learning. What developments and challenges have you seen that have been positive and negative? And, and what is still yet to be uh, uh, really developed in the way that you would like to see? Well, as I said, uh, I think one of the biggest developments that, that we've seen, especially post-COVID, is that parents are more accepting of virtual learning systems. Um, they're a lot less apprehensive to use them. Um, but I do think that the value proposition for virtual tutoring is significantly higher than, than that of virtual classroom learning. Virtual tutoring is essentially just taking a one-to-one -one relationship and, and using a different medium to deliver it. Classroom learning and the way that classes are structured in high schools and in colleges uh, are a combination of many different independent and organic experiences. And there's a lot of peer learning that happens in, in, in classrooms. And I think that that is what was lost towards the end of the school year as most school systems tried to implement virtual classroom learning. So I think that's going to be a major challenge for uh, public school systems. Uh, private school systems, I, I think, uh, showed a really strong value proposition. They were able to transition to virtual learning and essentially take the classroom and, and, and move it to virtual, whereas public schools had a large socioeconomic spectrum to try to deliver those resources. So they were faced, I think, with a, with a lot more difficult problems. Yeah. And, um, you know, the positive to Lee's point is definitely the increased adoption and more so the willingness to adopt the platform or the willingness to adopt technology. Uh, the negative side of things, to Lee's point again, is really this concept of the social aspect of the peer-to-peer -peer learning, where it's really difficult to recreate that classroom or that multi-student experience in the virtual uh, environment. You know, on paper, the leveraging technology is supposed to increase access to educational resources that traditionally wouldn't be able to be delivered when you're in person. The issue there is what technology really comes down to is a resource play. And until all students, no matter their background, are able to have access to similar resources that allow them to leverage the virtual education or the virtual learning tools, 
you know, it's scary to think if everything goes online that the education gap between the haves and the have-nots will only increase until we're able to solve this monstrous problem of how do we get resources to students who need it the most, and not just monetary resources, but more technological resources, whether that be infrastructure with bandwidth, devices with Chromebooks, um, or even hotspots through Khajiits. Um, that is the monstrous question right now that until that is solved, you know, I'm nervous this education gap between the two are just going to increase. You mentioned learning in a social environment. Have you seen any apps or technology that helps with that? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. Um, we haven't, yeah, we, we haven't really seen anything like truly innovative. The, the one thing I, I will say I've seen on a lot of the private high school side is they are using a lot of the, the, the breakout sessions in uh, virtual meetings to instead of just a teacher speaking to a group of 30 uh, for an hour, the teacher gives prompts to the students, breaks them in small groups of four to five, and then the students are required to report back um, with what they learned. And I think that's something that's actually improving the learning experience that wasn't done in classrooms, right? Because the traditional way is the teacher just sits up there and lectures for an hour. Uh, but now it's, again, putting more onus on the students to uh, really investigate these topics and come back with what they learned. And the, the difficulty is then you have to change the grading system, right? Like they're all learning, coming at it from a different way. But in my opinion, they're probably learning more in that environment. So if we could help to facilitate that those types of small group learning more, I think that's a truly innovative approach to, to online learning. And so really looking at it as a different approach to the traditional academic structure that was designed 400 years ago. Yeah, that's a very interesting concept, though, that one of a social network, but for schools, you know, I've seen it leveraged on the athletic recruitment side of things. And a few of those social networks um, have been able to really take off during this COVID era um, by providing a place for students to be able to socialize and get exposure specifically through the lens of uh, high school and college athletics. But the concept of a social network intended for schools to uh, facilitate whether it be peer learning or just, you know, social activities is um, one, one that I'd be very curious to see how that would be developed. Reading the media since COVID, it seems that everyone is using Zoom meetings to do these sorts of things. Have you seen any innovations We've mentioned it a little bit, but have you, have you seen any specific improvements since COVID in terms of the way that things are delivered online? From my perspective, what COVID's really done is helped us identify what doesn't work today online. And a lot of that is around, you know, the fact that Zoom, while an outstanding company, uh, you know, it's not an education company, but it's the number one tool being used in schools across the country right now. So until there are true technology companies that are born from the education space and from education companies, I'm concerned we're going to continue to run into these roadblocks where, you know, it's a tech business trying to take their tool or their platform, plug it in the education space because they know how large the market is, hoping that it'll do a good enough job. And I feel like Lee would agree with me here, you know, good enough doesn't work when it comes to a student's education. So until there's truly explicit education companies that decide to leverage technology to provide a solution for everyone else, um, I believe we're going to continue to run into some of these issues we've been experiencing. Yeah, and to tack on to that, I, I agree with John. I think it, he, you're right. Zoom, Zoom is sort of, uh, you know, trying to leverage itself as a, you know, an educational tool, but you really need somebody who understands educational pedagogy to, to tackle the classroom problem. Now, mm -hmm. one to one, I think Zoom does a, a, a sufficient job because you're communicating with the student. You can give them document cameras and webcams and, and whiteboard utilities, and, and you can create a very engaging atmosphere. And you can always tell if the student is looking at another screen. And, and, and so you can keep that engagement. But in a classroom experience, 
you can't stay on top of 30 students and how do you keep them engaged? And do you really need to have one teacher lecturing to 30 students or is it better to, to have them learn at their own independent pace? And as John said, I don't think just taking a, a, a video conferencing platform is the way to, to tackle that problem. I really think that educate educators and school systems need to throw out that playbook and say, how, if we could and we are going to design a tool to help every student sort of learn at their own pace, how are we going to do that in a virtual space? And uh, there's plenty of companies that are that are trying to develop that. Um, you know, Schoology for a while when they were raising funding, they were looking at doing that and they ended up just turning it, it turned into more of a, a blog utility and, and they were just helping distribute content. But it doesn't really tackle the problem of, of helping students learn at their own pace. Yeah. And I'd also say, you know, that's the major problem we're trying to tackle right now at Trilogy. You know, we've developed a one to one uh, virtual learning experience for the student instructor which has very bespoke tools built for educators. But the big problem we're trying to solve now is when you have 20 students in a video chat, you know, what are the tools needed in order to make that experience successful? And, you know, not just in the classroom, but then how does the entire platform around the classroom need to evolve via data reports, post-session reports, uh, session grades, so that, you know, we set these students and instructors up for success, as opposed to kind of uh, having them start a marathon with, you know, a weight tied around their ankle. Lee, I know you you uh, work with a lot of college students, and so you probably have an inside window into what, what's going on with colleges during this time. Have you seen any uh, innovations or any anything that these colleges seem to be doing to actually improve uh, that in terms of putting courses online and delivering not just content, but the whole educational experiences? Or is it just a, a, a fact that we're not, they're not there yet? They're not developing quick enough? Oh, yeah, I think they're not there yet. And they were take, taken off. They were, you know, taken off guard as everyone was, because you don't plan, as John said, to take everything digital in a matter of a couple of weeks. So I think the university systems in the U.S. are struggling hard right now to figure out how they can obey social guidelines and still deliver a, a robust college experience to all students. Because when you think about it, you're not paying, you know, if you go to Harvard, you're not paying because the, the professors are that much better than they are at the University of Louisiana. You're paying for that social network, um, the types of, for, you know, finals clubs and, and, and clubs that you would be involved with, you're, you're paying for the fact that you will end up becoming peers with people who will be senators, they will be CEOs one day, and it's that peer learning that's really missing. And so I think they're, they're trying to figure out how can they get students to be part of their university club and, and deliver the, I think delivering the content and delivering the learning it is, I think they're, they're able to do that well, but the rest of the college experience that happens organically, how, how do they deliver it better than it can be done on Snapchat or TikTok or, you know, or any of the social media platforms? And so if they can't deliver it better, why, why would you pay them the full price for that when really all they're now de delivering is content? So I think think that's what they're struggling with one of the things that they're struggling with yeah and um my perspective there is you know universities just are not built for innovation at the end of the day i mean their sales cycle alone is 16 to 20 something months so uh the concept of a university having to be able to move quickly to innovate and create a new solution just honestly in my opinion isn't quite plausible uh, I think that's where you see some of these other companies like 2U and Noodle Partners really start to thrive because they position themselves as technology partners for higher education institutions. I then think besides the technological innovations, you know, some of the more interesting things I've seen when it comes to instruction are actually the teacher innovations and how teachers kind of view this as a problem that they want to solve and put their best spin to be able to do it. An example would be uh, my former professor is now a teacher at UVA, Eric Martin. You know, his class used to be two 30-person classes um, 
two times a week for an hour. And what he did was he split it up to one hour long session with all the students and then 30 one on one meetings with each one of his students for 15 minutes. You know, Eric was one of those instructors and one of those professors who was willing to put more time into making an effective experience. So I think we have to look at it in two ways. One, what are the technological innovations that can be provided to not just help instruction, but to Lee's point, help the social aspect? And then two, you know, what are interesting ways that professors can actually hack the existing technology to make a more meaningful experience for their students? John and I have talked about this before. Um, I think this opens up, you know, Pandora's box into, you know, is this, are we going to be moving into like decentralized learning, fractional university degrees, and, and sort of just as a whole moving away from institutionalized learning? And I think the problem is, is that the university system in the U.S. has grown into a trillion dollar industry and uh, it can be difficult to take down industries that large. Lee, you work with a lot of people who do, do standardized tests. That's why they come to you a lot of the time. What are your basic views philosophically of, of standardized tests in general? Yeah, this is going to be a good question. John and I have differing views on this. Uh, I think in, in an ideal world, an unbiased standardized test is a excellent tool for a, a university or a school to use to be able to benchmark students who come from different places, right? They come from Louisiana, they come from California, they, they come from Maine and say, okay, the grades are gonna vary wildly to, from those different schools and those different localities. We need a standardized way to benchmark whether or not students are ready for the level of rigor that is gonna be required at this institution. So if there were no racial and gender and, and socioeconomic biases in the tests, it would be an excellent tool. Um, and I, I think it would be one that would be a no brainer. It's just another data points you have. Now, we obviously know that their the SAT, they've done studies, it's a better measure of, of how much your parents make than your, you know, the actual education that you receive. Um, and that's because you know, about 20 years ago, they, the tutoring industry really picked up and, you know, people paid to have tutors help them prepare for the test. And so if you had resources, you were going to do much better. So I think that needs to be taken into account. And this goes into the idea of, of what does candidacy look like for a student? Um, I think if you do away with standardized tests, because there are you know, essentially resource biases, biases in those, you, you need to acknowledge the fact that now you're going to be dependent on grades, which grade inflation and, and, and resource dependence on grades is still there. And you need to get down to the root of it, which is you need to recognize that if some, if a student's family has resources, they are always going to be more prepared than a student who doesn't, because if you have resources, you can buy time, um, and, and with that time, you're, you're always going to be farther ahead. So I, I think that just needs to be another layer um, that, that, that admissions counselors use when, when, they're, when they're viewing candidacy. Furthermore, I think standardized tests apply another filter. So I think UVA had record applications uh, a few years ago. I think they had, I don't know, 70 or 80,000 applications. And there's just no way you would have to triple, quadruple your admissions department to be able to really look through all those candidates. And again, in an ideal world, you would look at candidates and have them come in. Each of them would interview for a couple hours. They would tell their story and say, here's why I don't think I did as well in a standardized test, or here's why my grades were this way, and here's what I do, and here's why I would be a good fit for your school. You just can't do that with the, the number of applications that most of these schools use. So Standardized tests are a way to filter that. So um, I don't know what the, what the future looks like, but I do think that the University of California saying that they are moving away from standardized tests, um, you know, they're going test optional and they said they're going test blind, but they aren't going test blind. They're developing their own standardized tests. So they're replacing the, the big ones, the SAT and the ACT, with their own version of a standardized test because they realize that it's it's good to have that sort of benchmark. So with that, I will stop talking. 
Yeah, and you know, my perspective on this, man, it probably just comes down to the fact that I'm slightly more cynical than Ali is, but you know, we have this concept with our startup called ideal versus real. And you know, how does this work in an ideal world? And then at the end of the day, how does this work in the real world? And to Lee's point, you know, those with resources will always do whatever they can in their power to give their student an edge when it comes to something like a standardized test. So in the perfect world where we knew that wasn't going to be the case, I completely agree with Lee that having a data point that kind of allows us to compare students apples to apples as opposed to apples to oranges is an amazing idea. Um, my sole issue with standardized tests and the college board is, you know, I mean, a recent Medium article put it the perfect perfect way. They're serving as a middleman between the student and not just their higher education degree, but at the end of the day, they're serving as a middleman between a K-12 student and their future and their future ability to earn. So if we were to look at a perfect world in my perspective, we would move away from a standardized test like an SAT or ACT and, you know, focus more on the holistic student and take a more portfolio approach to vetting students' applications. I completely agree with Lee that, you know, these universities are really going to have to scale up their uh, admissions departments to be able to handle all these applicants. But I also wonder if that's an interesting place where technology can step in to help uh, to help these groups out. For example, there's a few startups out there that leverage artificial intelligence to uh, grade students on interviews to be able to give them tips and tricks on how to become a better interviewer so that they can land a better job. So I'd be curious if we'd be able to leverage either machine learning or artificial intelligence to help these universities be able to vet a more portfolio type application as opposed to just taking the 10% of students with the highest test scores and then starting to vet from there. What is the biggest problem that you've got now that you wish there was a technological solution for? Uh, well, John's probably got better answer to this than I do, but I think what I would love is an integrated and interactive content distribution network. Um, I, I think that many tutoring companies and and, and higher ed and, and public school systems suffer from having so many systems that track grades and track uh, resources and track curriculum. And, and it would be great to just have one system which integrated them. They were interactive for the students. And then that way, a parent, a coach, a mentor, a teacher, all of these uh, people could look at and see where the student is struggling the most and then help provide some guidance on how to get through that. And, you know, until that, that would work me somewhat out of a job because we would, you know, we would, there would be less need for individualized instruction to sort of put those pieces together. But that's what I would love to see. Yeah. And from my perspective, when it comes to solving problems, I always like to distill it down to its most simplest form and to try to solve, you know, the real root of the issue. And from my perspective, infrastructure right now is what's holding education, specifically modern education back because at the end of the day, you know, if you don't have internet or you don't have a reliable internet connection, you're not going to be able to leverage all these outstanding tools that are being created. So, you know, it's definitely a, a dream, but the concept of, you know, high speed internet free for all is something that until we solve that problem, I think we're just going to be handcuffed from the educator's perspective. And, you know, there's a few groups out there trying to solve it. But that's when you get into the real big players like Google, where they actually have a project called Google Loon, which is being developed in Google X, which is kind of their hidden incubator uh, program, where they're actually floating balloons into the stratosphere that then create a global internet network for rural communities to be able to leverage. So I think until we really solve the problem of infrastructure, which is a large one, um, we're just going to be handcuffed and, you know, fighting with one hand behind our back. What are the opportunities that you see for you in your businesses and also just in the huge education space in general, both now and perhaps just briefly in the, in the next five to 10 years and beyond? What, what do you see are the opportunities? Yeah. So the big opportunity I see with Trilogy is the fact that, you know, we're an education company that decided to evolve into a technology platform. 
So at our heart and in our DNA is education. So I believe we have a unique opportunity over the next few years to develop a technology platform that is truly educator and student first and takes into account the unique pitfalls and pains that educators, students, parents, administrators, all the stakeholders of a student's educational journey experience and be able to develop very bespoke, bespoke technology for specific niches inside the educational industry. Yeah, so I think um, the next five to 10 years in the tutoring space is, uh, I think, going to be a wild ride. Um, the tutoring space in general is, is pretty fractionated across uh, you know, a few large companies, some medium companies, and a lot of small independents. And so I think our opportunity comes uh, in, in by way of a threat. And, and the threat for us is that we are a very test-driven world right now. And standardized tests and tests in schools and standards of learning, um, all, all of these are, are part of the requirements in the school system. And as we start to see maybe the pieces fall in standardized tests, I think that the opportunity for us is to pivot away from preparing students for just a test and preparing them more for um, career trajectory and basically fractional career packaging, right? Starting to think about careers much er more early on and, and looking at us as more holistic coaches and say, let's just prepare you uh, for this next step in your career. And if this has to do with academics, great. Um, I think this would require, uh, you know, owners of companies and, and recruiting firms and, and, and HR firms to start looking at students less of, hey, tell us where your college degree is. And also your extracurriculars are important and, and to take a more um, subjective look at their transcripts that were maybe pieced together from many different institutions and, and many different sources of experience. And so... I think that is a real threat. And if we start to see a de-emphasis on four-year colleges, then what is that pathway to success? And I think there's you're always going to be a place for somebody who can be your mentor and help guide you through your, um, your career paces. And so that is a real opportunity for us. And so uh, that is something that we are exploring in both organizational coaching um, and other aspects of our business. What do you think the biggest change in education in general will be over the next five, 10 years? From my perspective, it's, um, it's what's going to happen with these standardized tests. And, you know, it's a very scary thing for the tutoring industry because, uh, you know, a lot of our market is built on standardized testing. Um, so I think that's seeing how that plays out is going to be very interesting. And then to Lee's point, I think there is a significant need for, you know, alternative uh, educational paths for students. You know, if you're in high school and you know you uh, want to be a plumber when you graduate, like why would you go to a four-year institution and rack up tens of thousands, if not $100,000 in student loans when you can go through a uh, different type of schooling that is only going to take you two years and get you paid in year three? So I'm very curious to see how standardized tests play out and then also with universities, especially if they're forced to be online for an entire year, you know, it's going to be tough for them to turn back around in 12 months from now, say, hey, that program we just convinced you to buy into for the past year, you know, isn't actually as good as we told you it was. And now you should spend more money to come back on campus with us. I think that's going to be a, a interesting one to see how those groups are able to handle it. Yeah, I think I think John's right. I think uh, looking at how you know, top tier universities get get their money, right? It, it's like I said, it's a trillion dollar industry. So they obviously would like to lock you in for four plus years, come to us for college and then come back for graduate school. And then also you could probably use an MBA as well. And so looking at um, offering other programs, you know, I think that the the transition from two-year MBAs to one-year MBAs in the last couple of years is a great example of how colleges will pivot to felt for a felt need. And my hope is that four-year institutions will pivot and, and offer more ad hoc courses. Hey, look, actually, here's a six-month or one-year course that will help you prepare. Um, and then that 
will be a way for them to retain earnings and uh, you know offer a more diverse um, you know more, more diverse offerings to students. And that way, students could piece together many different courses. And again, it would just put more burden on the recruiters to to look at applicants and say, "Wow, every applicant now looks much different. It's not just a bunch of um, you know college grads all rolling in with similar extracurriculars because that's what the colleges are telling them they need to do. And again, if the onus is more on the students, they're able to tell their story more. And as an interviewer, you could just say, hey, walk me through your experience and why you think you would be a good fit for this company. And again, you could use AI and and other tools to help help do that. But that's what I think uh, will be a change in the next five to 10 years. I think colleges will have to pivot to do that. John Lee, I know you talk to each other fairly regularly. What do you talk about when you talk? What else do you think listeners would like to hear that you guys bring up amongst yourselves? Lately, our our conversation is just uh, how rapidly the industry has changed. And I I think John mentioned it. It's what is that relaxation point, right? We went 100% virtual and we know that's not the answer. People are going stir crazy. They're just dying to get out of the house. So we, we crave that in-person interaction. So where are we going to relax back down to? And what does the education industry, like where is the overlap with other industries? You know, we've talked about, you know, John's, we talked about like, well, you know, education is any type of education, whether it's executive coaching, whether it's teaching a third grader. And so what lessons do, do we learn in our industry that that, you know, that could be more widespread. So that's what's been fascinating about some of our conversations. Um, John, do you want to pipe in? Yeah. And, you know, very much macro trends like what we're seeing. And um, one of the things we love to do at Trilogy is kind of put together thought pieces on, you know, the landscape of tutoring. And, um, you know, Lee and Claiborne have really done an amazing job of building themselves into a leader in the community and um, being able to leverage Lee's perspective on how, him and his company are able to be nimble and some new acquisition strategies they're going through to be able to grow during this unique time is something that I always love hearing about. And then um, what I always try to share is, you know, we have over a hundred tutoring companies around the country leveraging our platform right now. And I'm very much a data guy at the end of the day. So I just love being able to analyze that data and to be able to share it to, you know, help give Lee some insights in where we see the market moving a perfect example is towards more of holistic skills and like organizational coaching. So it's uh, whenever we and then we always talk about some lofty things, you know, what we expect to happen in five years or uh, what we've been hearing from some of our advisors and or investors. But, um, you know, it's just great to be able to talk to someone who uh, has a similar perspective on education and also a similar fascination on kind of how, you know, our worlds have really been turned upside down due to COVID. Lee and John, this has been a great conversation. Um, you guys are in lots of different areas of education. And it's really good to get your point of view. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you, Peter. My guests today were Lee Elberson from Claiborne Education and John Faila from Trilogy Mentors. To find out more about Lee or Claiborne, go to Claiborne, C-L-A-Y-B-O-R-N-E.com. If you want to find out more about John or Trilogy Mentors, go to TrilogyMentors.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, tell your friends. See you next time.